0: Well, yes, you probably have guessed it by now, if you haven't got your, if you haven't got your Bible this morning, Proverbs chapter 29. <clears throat> I know we're a ways from this yet, but uh, I would, uh, I'm thinking about, I've always wanted to do this, and it would be a great book. I'm thinking about once we finish up Proverbs here, and you know, in the next four or five years, uh, I'm thinking about teaching the book of the Gospel of John. I think that that is such a powerful book, and there's so much from from where we're at right now that we can learn from that. Uh, It's just one of the key books. And and, and in doing that, I can weave in the first four books of the Bible for you uh, in the New Testament. And uh, I I just think we would uh, learn a lot from that. But, you know, uh, we're focused on Proverbs 29 today. It's something we can all pray about. uh, But, uh, you know, last week... We, we looked at three amazing verses. Uh, Proverbs is just an incredible book. It's uh, actually, if I would be honest with you today, I think when we finish Proverbs, we could most generally and likely just start over again and come through it again, <laughs> but uh, we won't do that. But it's it's been an amazing book. I don't know of another book in the Bible that meets us on the level of where we're at and really helps us grasp the principles of life that... That, that we need. It, it just deals with so much that impacts all of us. And, you know, last week we looked at 11, 12, and 13. He ain't going to bother me, honey, unless you got to go. He's just stretching his lungs to preach someday. I'm good with it. I kind of like it. <clears throat> but anyway, verse 11, we, we talked about, as we know from Proverbs, a wise man and a foolish man. And we talked about the wise man having the ability to use truth, uh, but they use it the right way. I, I talked about the depth of God and getting to the point in your life where you really understand the depth of the Word of God. Bibles call the unsearchable riches. Uh, it's endless. And honestly, we could go through Proverbs now and start again right through the middle and God would show us just as much the next time, next time as He showed us this time. That's the beauty about the Word of God. And we talked about, you know, in life, the physical life around us, there's three dimensions to it. We talked about that. The Bible talked about it in Ephesians chapter four, verse nineteen, the height, the breadth, the length, and I showed you how that they really deal with uh, God in a way, dealing with the the the, the mercy of God, the uh, you know the love of God, the historical aspect of God, and all of those things. Uh, the the downside of that is the truth is that most Christians are not even three dimensional; they're just one dimensional. I know most of you ladies probably, uh, and a lot of you guys, you probably never really went deer hunting. I know we have a lot of hunters here, but they don't understand what I'm saying. If you really want to do a, a, a successful deer hunt, you've got to get in a deer stand. You know, the guy who just walks through the woods, I mean, he may get lucky and get a dumb deer, or you know, uh, or he may just stumble into something. But you can't see because everything's one-dimensional. Once you get in a deer stand just 10, 15 feet up, those three dimensions come alive, and you can see everything now where on a ground level you can't. That's what Christianity is for most of God's people, ground level. They never see the depth of everything around them, the dimensions of really the Word of God and, and the Lord, much less ever get to that fourth dimension the spiritual dimension that, that talks about being filled with the fullness of God, understanding how to use what you have, that depth, that you don't just <clears throat> puff yourself up with it and talk about all the knowledge and what you do know, but you learn how to use that. You learn how to read circumstances and situations and people, and then you you call upon the depth of what you know to be able to hand-fit that to what uh, you need to do. It's really the key to preaching. I, I am excited with Charles's new ministry over here, you know, that he's doing for us down there at the, the rest home. We've got some really young guys going to be preaching for the very first time. I think that's just great. I really do. I've talked to several of them, and they got good verses. they got good, uh, you know, material that they're going to try to develop, and I think that as an entry level, boy, that's exactly what we need to do. Got some of the older guys, you know, uh, that are going to help them and work with them and, and encourage them and show them stuff. that doesn't get any better than that. But I want to tell you something preaching is not nearly as much as the text that you have or what you know or don't know about the Bible. Preaching success is the ability to use the resources that you do have, being able to inject something here, put something in here. Don't just stay along the party lines of your message, but be able to get off the depth that you have. I've always thought, and I like to listen to preachers, and I've always, in my own mind, because I am one, you know, you automatically just grade them as what you think how good they are. And I always enjoyed sermons. I've always enjoyed sermons. I know the guys that preach here, I know when Danny preaches and Bob preaches, I listen to them when I'm out of town. You can get, a good sermon is one you can come away and get four or five other sermons out of. There's so much depth to them, and, and that's the key. Now, I don't expect you young guys going down to the rest home down there to, you know, take them down to gap theory and put them all that stuff together, uh, but, I do, but it's a start for you. And as you do that, God will open up more doors for you, and as you learn the Bible, my job is to show you how to use all of that, understanding how to use what you know when you build that level of depth in your life. You know, and we talked about, you know, not teaching all the Bible you know. Uh, I didn't give you this verse last week, uh, but it's one of my favorites. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, and it says, "...the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed," that'll be the deep things, "...those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever." that we may do all the words of this law. What a great verse that is. That verse shows you that there'll be many things as you get into the depth of God that God just kind of puts his arm around you and gives to you. He'll show you. You know, I've always had the picture in my mind of somebody studying myself, you know, late at night or throughout the day or whatever, and you're sitting down there by yourself at a desk or a table, and the Bible's over, and you're pouring over it. I've always likened myself, I love the, I think I saw a picture one time of this, of the Holy Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, standing by you while you're seated there with his arm around you, pointing and showing things to you in the Bible. The things that God gives you as you get into the depth of the Bible, they're yours. They're yours. There's something that you and God, together, God gave that to you. And you want to share them with your children. And in time, uh, you'll, you'll learn how to share some of those things with the people that you're working with. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 says, And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Most people would never even understand what the fullness of God is. They would think that just being full of the Holy Spirit, you know, like the day you get saved. They would think that uh, all kinds of things. But in reality, here again, <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 2, going back to our book on Proverbs. We talked about this way back when when we came through chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Proverbs, chapter 1 through 5, will tell you the five steps of getting the fullness of God. It's incredible stuff. Then verse 12, you know how that leadership is so vital uh, in the lives of God's people. Pastors uh, to their churches, parents to their children, and uh, how God intended an unbroken chain of truth being passed down through the New Testament church. It's called the the Timothy Principle in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2 where he says, Paul says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. God designed Christianity to be an unbroken chain of truth. Forget all the other heresies that pop up. Forget all the other goofy stuff that people get into. It's, it means nothing. I showed you a couple of weeks ago how heresy is important to God because it establishes what the real truth is. Had an unbroken, unbroken chain of biblical truth that is established through history than is established uh, through uh, the Word of God. And uh, it, it, it just it doesn't get any better than that. And that's what God intended. And we've seen over the weeks how that has all fallen apart during the time in the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. We looked at verse 13, how that God is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I didn't give you this last week because I was trying to move through some things, but I think the greatest, and I told you how that God in his own way in his own time. I gave you four things that God will give a revelation about himself through. One of them was the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all of the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. God down through history. You see, we get so locked into being a Baptist with our Baptist teaching and our Baptist tradition. We just think that that uh, that you know, American Christianity is the only way that God ever did it. This is where the failure of missions come in. They try to, American missionaries try to go into foreign countries and make everybody there little Americans and get out of their own culture. And, of course, that, that's a, such a sad state, but that's what happens today. But I, 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 you know, I've known for many, 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 many years that God does dealing with man, what he wants to do. The book of Proverbs, again, tells us how that God's spirit touches man's spirit and, uh, and gives him the light that he needs. I don't think for a moment. You know, you ever stop and think of what was happening in North America while Jesus was doing his deal over there in the Middle East? Or you know, as Europe was forming in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh century, ever wonder what has happened around the world? I mean, do you really believe that all those other indigenous people just died and went to hell? I mean, I know they didn't have a Baptist church to go through. There was no Jonathan Edwards or no David Brainerd, uh, and we think because of the fact that that uh, uh, they didn't have what we have that they they all got lost. And, and, you know, and history is a <clears> – <throat> believe me, I'm a student of history. History is a very – can be a very, can be a minefield if you're not careful because people read history and they forget the fact that uh, the writer of history is writing it from his perspective, and sometimes his perspective is good and sometimes it's not. You've got to weigh all history out in the light of the Word of God and what he's given you. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world – I don't think for a moment that every American Indian in America during that time died and went to hell. I just don't. You see, we tend to think of the Indians as savages. You know, we think of Custer's last stand and the brutal battles that the, uh, the Indians did and how they massacred the white man. But let me ask you a question. If somebody broke into your house at 2 o'clock in the morning, wouldn't you kill them? Amen. I mean, the Indians lived in that land for what? Centuries. And then the white man comes in, gonna boot him out, make some promises he doesn't keep, puts them on reservations and starves them. What would you do? I'm not justifying it one way or the other. I'm just saying you gotta be careful with history. And I know that, you know, in Kansas City, you got good people and you got bad people. And you know what? Do you think with the American Indians you didn't have good Indians and bad Indians? I know the white man said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's not true. And, you know, we get to the point that we, we get so sterile in our thinking. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that, that all the American Indians, and I'm just using them for example, men over the world, he is the true light. And when God can't get him a Baptist church, <laughs> a Baptist preacher, thank God for that, when God can't, get, he'll get him the truth somehow because he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world you ever hear, ever hear of the Nazpec tribe out in Oregon? When the pilgrims showed up here and got on the East Coast after about here, about 70, maybe 100 years, the Nazpec Indians from Oregon made a 2,500-mile 2, trip to the white man. You know what he asked? He wanted to know if they had the book that told the story of the son of the great white father. Now, how did they get that? You see, we get the idea that because they rode horses that lived in teepees and, and uh, you know, and ate buffalo meat and uh, that they were, they were savages. They ran around half naked, you know, in loincloth Well, that happens in Kansas City every Friday and Saturday night. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and yes, most of them are savages too. I mean, come on! Human nature is always the same. I don't care if you're a a chick-a-wall, a chickpaca, or a Sioux, or a whatever, or you're, you know, a vice president of Sprint. There were tribes here when the white man came that wanted to know about the son of the great white father. You never read about that. Somebody says, "Where do you learn that stuff?" It's a conspiracy. They hide that in books. (laughs) I know this. The American Indian talked about a great white father. That's about as close to God as you can get in Revelation chapter 1. He talked about the great all-knowing spirit. That's about as close as you can get to the Holy Spirit of God, John chapter 16. I know this. When he went out on a hunting trip and he shot a deer, you know the first thing he did? He laid his bow and arrow down and got on his knees and thanked the great white Father, great Spirit, for bringing the deer to him. That's more than most Baptists will do this afternoon when you sit down over your measly lunch. And they're heathens. He's the true light. And you see, we as Baptists, and I'm just picking on Baptists. I'll I, I pick on everybody else in a little bit. We think, we're so conceited, we think that if it didn't happen the way we have it happen and the way we do it, that it's wrong. And that's just so stupid, absolutely stupid. And then, you know, those were three great verses and three incredible verses. And today, we want to move into three more. Boy, we're moving through this thing like a laser beam. Chapter 29, 14, 15, and 16, and we will look at a few more verses, and again, uh, we will glean out of them what God has for us. Now, let me read it for you, and then uh, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. The king that faithfully judges the poor, his throne shall be established forever. The rod and reproof give him wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous shall see their fall. Charles, would you stand up and ask God's blessing, and we'll pray for you this afternoon. Who's preaching today? Uh, DJ. DJ. Where's DJ at? DJ, stand up. Everybody pray for DJ today. What are you preaching on, DJ? I didn't ask you, now. I didn't ask you to preach on it today. I just asked you what you're preaching on. <coughs> what are you preaching on? Three gifts that God gives us. And there's one of them, the lady sitting next to you. Yeah. <laughs> Still time to make it four before she walks out that door. <laughs> Good job. We'll be praying for you. Okay, Charles. Thank you, Charles. If you're visiting here today or you're just checking us out, we have fun with two things. Eating. We eat all the time. And we eat good stuff. I've been in some Baptist churches, you know, where they make a big deal about a banquet and it's a hot dog. And the pastor calls it a tube steak. You kidding me? It's a weenie. And charge you $3 for a weenie. You kidding me? And they boil them. I'm going to tell you what. The person who boils hot dogs, God has already consigned them to a special place in the lake of fire. I ain't getting here. Boiled hot dogs are the worst in the world. Okay. Second thing we have fun with is the Bible around here. We enjoy the Bible. We enjoy each other because the Bible gave us each other. We wouldn't be here today having fun and doing what we do and if God wouldn't have gave us the Bible. That makes everybody here special. That makes everybody here special. You visitors today or people checking on our church makes you special. God could have sent you to, to, you know, to quick trip Baptist church down the road here. These are three great verses. And today... You're going to learn some stuff. You're going to learn some stuff about your Bible that I think will help you get up to another couple levels if you're paying attention, and then you're going to learn some good practical stuff. And I think that when we're all said and done today, I, in a practical way, inspirationally, we're going to have some doctrinal things here, but I, I, I want you to come away with four great principles that I want you to get down today as we work our way through uh, these verses. We're going to look at some things doctrinally, and then we're going to look at some things uh, inspirationally to kind of set our context. But you'll go out of here today learning some things. Uh, And that's my goal. I want you to learn some things about the Bible, but I also want you to learn some things about life. Verse 14, the king that faithfully judges the poor, his throne shall be established forever. Now, doctrinally, (coughs) no question about this, most of you probably already figured this one out. Doctrinally, this will be a reference to the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. His thousand year reign that we know about, laid out clearly in the Bible. Uh, you'll find it probably the easiest way to find it is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. He goes through the whole thing there in a, in a general sense. You know, as you grow in, in your Bible and you get to hobnob with people about the Bible, you're going to find that. Basically there's three different teachings on this millennial reign of Christ. And uh, you need to know them. I remember when I first started way back in the day learning the Bible. Uh, this was one of the first three things that I that I learned. And I got them down. I still have the notes from those many 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 years ago. And you know, the first teaching that you're going to find is what we call amillennialism or amillennialism. And uh, somebody who believes ominalism, and this would be the Catholic Church uh, and other churches like that, they don't believe that there's any thousand-year reign. They believe that it's a spiritual reign that started when Christ went back to heaven and that we're living through it right now and there's no thousand-year period, but it's up till Christ comes back. So it's called awe. is means none or no, or uh, you know no millennium. Then you have what we call post Postmillennialism post is people believe that we make the world a better place to live. We clean up all of, the, uh, all of the corruption and make the world safer, better, and all of these things. And then when we get to the world to a, a, a high point, then Christ comes back. And that's called post-millennialism. That'll be your Protestant churches. Uh, we call them the kingdom builders. They preach the social gospel. They're always trying to, you see it in politics, they're always trying to uh, make the world a better place to live. And uh, they talk about peace, peace, peace. They've never learned a great lesson that there'll be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes back. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how that they work. And then we have what we call premillennialism. Premillennialism is what the Bible teaches. And that means that Jesus Christ is going to come back kick the fire out of everybody on the planet, and then he's going to establish the thousand-year righteous reign before eternity begins. Now, this is a great example. Premillennialism is a great example of established truth through established history. The true Bible-believing church has believed that for centuries. It's been a solid doctrine that's been taught. In fact, it is so clearly taught in the Bible that, you know, I just don't know how you really could miss it unless you just really wanted to. You know, the definitive passage, we talk about the millennium, the definitive passages on it in your Bible will be Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. I tell you that all the time. You'll find that in that, those eight chapters that he goes through every aspect of this thousand year reign. Clarence Larkin's books here that we have back in the bookstore uh, probably, in my estimation, does the greatest job laying it out on a chart wise. In fact, when I put it in my Bible years ago, I just took what he had and laid it all out and worked it all out and put it in there. It doesn't get any better than that. But it's a those eight chapters really lay it out. But having said that, <coughs> the chapters before it, 36, 37, 38, and 39, are all built into chapter 40 through 48 to show you the pre premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 36 and chapter 37 deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel under the thing of the dry bones, you know, coming back alive. Chapter, chapter, 30, uh, uh, chapter 38 uh, and 39 deal with the tribulation period and all that's taking place there. And then you have the second coming in chapter 39, and then in chapter 40, you got the millennium. Everything in the Bible points to the pre-millennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. And, uh, you know, uh, every, every time that you get into your Bible, you'll see it over and over and over again in every kind, of, every kind of picture that you want. And this will be the main theme of the Bible. I told you this Thursday night, most people think the main theme of the Bible is salvation. Well, I'm not lessening salvation, and salvation is certainly one of the sub-themes of the Bible, <clears throat> but uh, it's not the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is the Day of the Lord. Over a thousand times in the Old Testament, you have a reference to that. And, and here again, Baptists can't seem to get that. But for me, it's pretty understandable. The greatest day on God's calendar wasn't the day <clears throat> he came down and, and, and the sun came down and the world took him, beat him, uh, you know, cussed him, spit in his face, and slapped him and then crucified him, and put a spear in his side and killed him. That wasn't God. That, now, that's my greatest day because that's the day he took my sin. But that's not God's greatest day on God's calendar. No, no, the greatest day on God's calendar is the day his son sits down on the throne in Jerusalem and is crowned king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's his day. That's called that day, the day of the Lord, all through the Bible, over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And that will be the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 that we talk about, you know, at the establishing of his government. In your Bible, there will be uh, this will be the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this Thursday night a little bit. Uh, defined for you in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is about the king. You will find 52 references in Matthew on the kingdom of heaven. More than any other place in the Bible because it defines what that kingdom is. In the Old Testament, here again, this will be typified by, by uh, two men. If you want to study it out, it will be David and Solomon. David and Solomon are both types of Christ. David is a type of Christ at the second coming. He defeats all the last enemies of the nation of Israel, wipes them all out, kills all the last ones, gets rid of every one of them. He reigns for 40 years, and then Solomon comes to the throne. After he does that, and he reigns for 40 years, and during Solomon's reign, there's no wars, no battles, no enemies, all peace. See, David is a type of Christ at the second coming, wipes out the enemies. Solomon is a type of Christ in the millennium, peace for 40 years. It's all through the Bible. Bible tells us this will be a righteous reign. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. It'll be a reign of righteousness. It'll be one that, that there's no corruption, that there's nothing, anything done wrong. It's an incredible time period. Zechariah chapter 14 is a great chapter on it. Here's a good chapter for Baptists. Zechariah chapter 14 in the millennium, clearly all these nations that are left, and you know what? They're coming into Jerusalem during the millennium, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. What? And, of course, the answer to that is found in Colossians chapter 2, which most people couldn't find it was, if their life depended on it. In fact, you want to get down, just go back one chapter. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2 says in the millennium, if somebody comes up and starts to preach and tell somebody about Christ, their parents thrust them through and kill them. You got to figure out why that is. <laughs> you might learn something about the Bible doing that. It's quite incredible, quite incredible. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 says it's going to be a rod of iron reign. That means there's going to be no tolerance for anything that's wrong. It says he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Rod of iron means it's going to be strict, strict for righteousness. Wouldn't it be great to live in a place where uh, nothing was ever done wrong? Nobody ever lied, nobody ever cheated. You could take your car to get it fixed and the mechanic wouldn't rip you off. I mean, you could you could do whatever you had to do, and nobody you know nobody would call you on the phone trying to sell you something that's illegal. You wouldn't have these guys calling up saying, "Hey, I'm from the Highway Patrol Protection League for Funds of Widows. We'd like you to send us thousand dollars." None of that would happen. See, this will be this will be the utopia the man has been looking for and trying to build all down through history. All down through history, man has tried to make the world a better place. He's tried to come to this point where he gets that because he's been a kingdom builder. They reject the Bible. They think the very idea of evolution, that man is evolving up, and the, what's the end game in that? We all get to the place where, I mean, come on. We all, you've seen the sci-fi movies. We all get to that advanced place in, in, in the future where uh, we're smarter, that we've done away with war, we've done away with disease, we've done away. Of course, by that time, you've evolved where you've got no ears, no eyes, and you're just a plant laying in a pottery someplace, but the world's going to be better. A perfect society. That's what man wants. He wants one that's free from war. He wants one that's free from disease. He wants it to be a paradise, but he doesn't want God connected with it. You know, he's a millennial or he's a he's a postmillennial. He's a kingdom builder. He, he, wants to, he wants to work hard at making the world a better place. He wants to get rid of social issues or race issues. He wants to get away with this. He wants to take all the guns away from you so they'll end violence. He wants to do all the things that he can. He wants to, he wants to give everybody health care. So everybody, that's all going toward that mindset. Back in the 1700s when the British Empire was really ruling the seven seas with her vast, vast navy, and of course she explored. And you got to remember now is that she was a Bible-believing nation at that time. Believed the Bible, everything about it. And when they got down to the South Seas down there in around Tahiti, those places, New Georgia, those places down there, Guadalcanal, all those paradise places that were just seemingly like a paradise. Big palm trees, big parrots squawking all the time. You know, just a, I mean, warm breeze all the time, water rolling in. You know what they, who believed the Bible, nicknamed those islands? The Solomon Island chain. Because they knew that Solomon was a picture of that in the kingdom. Incredible. Incredible. You know, after World War One, and World War One was probably the first war. I mean, the Civil War was terrible, no question about it, but it paled in comparison to the death, and the, and the ravaging of World War One. World War One was just an incredible, incredible waste of human life. I mean, it was one of the most terrible battles. That, in fact, it had been called the war to end all wars. They thought that man would learn the lessons from that. I mean, millions and millions and millions of men killed. I got a buddy of mine who loves World War One, and he studies it, and he travels to all the battlefields, you know, in Europe that are still there. And he showed me a picture on his last trip a while back of, of a line that's all covered over with dirt. And you can see on this line about 200, 300 bayonets sticking up out of, the, out, of the, out of the dirt. And he explained to me that these French soldiers were in a trench and a bombardment came in and buried them. Until this day, they left them bay there and they, all you can see is they're holding their rifles with the bayonets up out of the dirt. Terrible war. After World War I, around 1919, they come up with the idea of the League of Nations. The League of Nations was the forerunner of the United Nations. And a League of Nations was nations that were going to not have any more war ever again. How'd that work? World War I, World War, uh, World war I, after World War I, World War II, we dropped the atom bomb. So somebody said, I know what, if we really want to make this work, we need to change the name. So now it becomes United Nations. You know what the United Nations, their, their building is in Washington. You know what they did? They went over there in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 and they put the verse up there about bleeding your, beating your swords and the plowshares and, and your weapons of war and the pruning hooks. They take a verse out of Isaiah that is given to the Lord during the millennium and put on their building and then put the verse down there and they wouldn't know war anymore. Noble effort, 275 wars since the United Nations began. You ain't going to fix it. You're not going to fix it. Today, United Nations is a bunch of nations that are against the nation of Israel. That's all they are. They're set up for the Antichrist. Now, when Christ comes back and he establishes his righteous rule of iron, there'll be no war. There'll be no United Nations. There'll be no governments. There'll be no president. There'll be no kings. There'll be no queens. There'll be no disease. There'll be no politics. There'll be no churches. There'll be no preaching. It'll be Jesus Christ on the throne, David sitting as the prince, ruling the whole world with a rod of iron. That's what I'm looking for. And Revelation 19.11 says, In righteousness doth he judge and make war. And when he comes back and establishes his kingdom, it'll be a kingdom that nobody is going to contend with. Now, Understanding that in your Bible, there's a great contrast to that. We know that the Antichrist is the fake kingdom that comes in before the Lord. He lasts for seven years. He's called the Antichrist. He portrays himself as Christ. And, uh, in fact, in the Bible, you've got to be careful because the Bible tells you very clearly in the book of Revelation that there's two Christs. And you've got to be careful with those things because most people will follow the wrong one And uh, God says, He says, uh, uh, His calls it His Christ. Uh, Another place it calls it the Lord's Christ because there's the Lord's Christ and then there's the devil's Christ, the Antichrist. And uh, you know, so uh, He sets up His false kingdom first. And he comes in and he sets up a a false kingdom. He claims to be God. He sits in his seat in the temple showing himself that he's God. This is called the abomination of desolation. And he he portrays himself to the world that he is God. Now, at this point, all the kingdom builders are going to go crazy because now they have thinking that they have brought the world to a great place and here he is. (laughs) It's all working together as a plan. And, of course, we know that he's not the Christ. He's the Antichrist. And after seven years' tribulation, then we find the real Christ shows up, the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now, that's typified back in your Bible, uh, again, by Saul and David. Saul was the first king that Israel got, and he was a bad king. He wasn't God's choice. David was God's choice, and he's the second king. Somebody said, why does the Bible always do it that way that he gave you Saul first was the bad king and then David is a type of Christ at the second coming, he's the good king. That's because the Bible says your first birth isn't any good and it has to be your second and you must be born again. See how that works? All the way through the Bible. All the way through the Bible. Now, inspirationally, here we go. This will be a general truth of how New Testament Christianity should really operate. Christ reigning in our lives and we taking care of each other as God's people and Christianity being established forever uh, in this dispensation of the church age. The poor here will be the spiritually poor and physically poor, being ministered to by God's people through the church. The throne here, inspirationally, will be the kingdom of God. Two kingdoms in your Bible. One is a spiritual kingdom, one is a literal kingdom. Your whole Bible is rightly divided around those two kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom given to the nation of Israel, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom given to us. Luke chapter 17, verse 21 says that the kingdom of God is in you. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says that the kingdom of, God is, uh, kingdom of God is not drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's a spiritual kingdom. Fundamentally speaking, it will deal with the, through the churches, uh, as we've talked about this before, families being established through the righteous rule of the parents, as the Bible talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. Good spiritual, uh, you know, uh, uh, God's uh, spiritual kingdom going uh, on and on and on down through the generations. insured. and we've talked about it before, God's plan in the Old Testament was to reach the world through families. God's plan in the New Testament is to reach the world through families. Now, there's going to be a lot coming up on this the rest of this morning and next week and the week after because we're moving into a section of Proverbs that really, really, really is going to help a lot of you young parents, a lot of you singles that someday you will parent, and even some of you parents that are older parents that you're having kids. (laughs) Now, let's look at verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Now, in our spiritual application, We see the importance of a righteous reign in our families, a rod of iron with our children. Now, let me talk for a moment about the importance of a rod. I know we live in a in a day and age where uh, you know that uh, the whole mindset is to pamper your child. You know, get find out what their favorite color is, work through all their issues. Corporal punishment, whipping them, is off the scale in most places. When I grew up, as some of you older guys grew up and women, you remember in our days in school, the principal's paddle was feared more than the atomic bomb. And I remember, I never got one, but I remember when somebody would go down to the principal's office and you knew he was going to get a whack, they'd open the doors. You know how he echoes down through the halls of them big old schools? And we'd all be listening for the rifle crack. Sometimes he got one. Sometimes they got two, sometimes they got three. I don't remember any getting more than three. Well, by that time they were prostrate on the ground and they couldn't get up anyhow. But I mean to tell you, and you, know, and they, you know, they found devious ways. They took a paddle out of wood about that thick, and that wouldn't hurt enough. They drill holes in it. It's like a hollow point bullet. They do much more damage. I don't know what them little holes do that, on the seat of your pants, but I guarantee you, it made a difference can't do that anymore, you try to do that today. I was in math class one time, and I was probably in the eighth grade ninth grade eighth grade, and we had a teacher his name was uh uh well, he was an ex marine what was his name by Mr. Miller. Mr Miller yeah, Mr. Miller Mr. Miller was tough. I remember one time when the teacher went out of the room, all the kids would go crazy. We had this Rough girl in, in, our, in our school. There was several of them, but she was a gang. She would be a gang girl today, but she was a nice girl. But no, no, she was really rough. She was rough. <laughs> she would she would beat most guys up if she had a chance to. Yeah, yeah, she, that's right, Bob. You got it. You're on there. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> Mr. Miller goes down to the office for something, and the place is going crazy. And I'm sitting there, you know, watching all this stuff, you know, and, and she stands up, takes a ruler and a penny, throws it up in the air, and whacks it, and hits the blackboard. Just as she did, Mr. Miller came in. He came, grabbed her by the hair, oh. ripped her out of that seat, and dragged her down to the principal's office. Try that today. You're laughing, but that's why I, who I am, and that's why I, who you are. I mean, come on. The world calls it corporal punishment. That's a military term. In a company, you had a captain over the company. You had four uh, four, uh, uh, platoons within the company. Each one had a first lieutenant. And then you had a first sergeant over it all. Then you had staff sergeants, buck sergeants. And then you had a corporal in each one. And when somebody had to get punished, they gave it to the corporal to do. And his job was to administer the punishment, whatever it was, corporal punishment. Where it comes from. And uh, I'm just going to tell you right now, you can do whatever you want to do. You can read Dr. Spock. You can read, you know, whoever you want to read and all these stuff. You cannot biblically train your child without corporal punishment. I'm just telling you. I mean, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says that if you, if you, oh, well, this is a great one. They don't understand that if you withhold that, you hate your child. Now, most parents would not whip their kid because they say, I love him. The Bible just takes the opposite and says, if you don't hit him, whip him, whatever, corporal punishment, that you hate him. You know why? Because Proverbs 23, verse 13 through 14 says that if you were held, correction, the rod, if you let, don't spare for his crying, the Bible says, here it comes, you will deliver his soul from hell. There's a value in it. I mean, it's just that simple. Now, I want you to look at verse 15, and for a few moments here, I want to talk about the two aspects of disciplining your children based on Proverbs. There's two things in verse 15, the rod and reproof. Now, you need to get this. The rod will be the action of the discipline the reproof will be understanding the consequences of the discipline. And verse two, verse 15 says that it takes two rod and reproof, and when you use them both, it giveth wisdom. Now, let me give you an example you can all and I can understand. You and I get in, have gotten into sin in our lives. Sure we have. It's a great, great principle. God will forgive us in a heartbeat for whatever we do. But he won't necessarily take away the consequences, will he? You take a guy that drinks alcohol all of his life. He's drinking for 30, 40, 50 years. He gets right or gets saved, and God saves him in a heartbeat. And maybe he gives up the alcohol, but he dies of cirrhosis of the liver. You see, God will forgive you, but he won't give you a new liver. I mean, I see people all the time that have had so many drugs in their life that they're brain dead. And I believe they get saved. But you know what? God doesn't come down and he regenerates your soul, but he leaves your brain cells the way they are. You see, your children, as we, need to learn that there's consequences and when we do things wrong, we break the rule. And we have to get that only through reproof. I mean, you take somebody who gets into debt because they make bad choices, or they do this, or they just live a lifestyle. Now they got three marriages, free alimony payments, kids all over the place. they got to work two jobs. They, I've seen them to the place where they, they made $3,000, $4,000 a month, and $3,000, $3,500 $3, of that went to, went to alimony. And they got $500 left. But they're saved now. They're right, and they want to do what's right. But the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap someday. And you know why he does that? Now, I'm not saying he won't get you out of it in time. The greatest thing about God is after he saves you and we got ourselves in a deep mess, he will throw you a shovel. But the angels are all busy. You're going to have to dig it out yourself. And it's a thing where, you know, you, you every time, you, you, you learn your lessons. Every time you say, I can't do this anymore. Every time you don't have enough money for the end of the month. Every time you have to do this or you have to deal with an ex-wife. Or every time you have to deal with this or a doctor bill or this or that. You will remember what got you there. We like to just... With our children, we like to just, when they get into trouble, like ourselves, we think that we just, okay, I gave you the rod, now everything is okay. There's no consequences to your action. There's always consequences to your action. That's the reproof. And I'm telling you, now many parents will use the rod, but they'll not follow through with the reproof. Hey, I know lots of parents that won't even do the rod. They're goofy, but they come to the place where, oh, I'm going to make my kid stand in a corner. Or I'll make my kid, I'll give him a time out. I'll do this or do that. Well, That takes so long. I mean, a good whack across the rear end, boy, at 150,000 miles a second is a good way to get their attention. Amen. Our kids, your kids, my kids need to know that there's consequences to them breaking the rules. Just using the rod and then going on like, oh, nothing happened. Everything is great. They forget about it. That's why they go right back into it again. Listen, you need to establish a throne, a throne of righteousness, a righteous rule, a rod of iron that they understand when they violate that rule, that Go against that rod; that there's consequences to it. The reproof will be the lesson that they'll learn because of what they did. For instance, parents will do, okay, you're grounded. Take away him running out or her running out with her friend. I get that, pretty good. When I was in my age, it was, go to your room without supper. Now, that affected us back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you know how my grandma cooked. I can tell you a story sometimes. You'd be better off in the room. But anyway, that won't work today. Send it into your room. You kidding me? You got your own TV set. You got your own stereo system. You got your own Xbox. You got it. Uh, who wouldn't want to go to your room? That's great punishment. Well, I'm going to take away your cell phone. I'm going to take away your Xbox. One of my favorites, have them write a thousand times a day. I will not. See, that was big in my day. When we in school, when I got in trouble for talking or whatever, you'd have to write a thousand times I will not talk in class. To me, that was great because I learned my lesson. I've known parents that, that, uh, that make their kid write out a Bible verse, depending on what they did, uh, a 1,000 times, 500 times a day. Let me tell you something. You have a kid write out 500 times a day a Bible verse, I guarantee you one thing. He'll remember that Bible verse. And every time he writes it, when his hands start to cramp up, when he says, I can't do this anymore, when he says, I miss my friends, I can't watch television, i got to have my 10,000 in a day, when I do this, when I do that, it'll be a reminder that there's consequences to your sin of breaking the rules. Sin and disobedience has to cost them something. That's reproof, or they never learn the lessons if there's no cost involved. Now look at the last part of the verse. But a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Now you better get this one. Your children need a righteous reign in your family. Spiritual leadership that deals with a rod and reproof. Not only the discipline of action, but the discipline of consequences for those actions. Over the years, I've seen many parents, dads in particular, abandon their kids and leave them uh, to themselves in the most formidable years of their lives. Many of them preachers. They're so busy dealing with everybody else's issue. They fail to see that their kids go through, every kid goes through the most crucial, volatile time of their life when they need an established rule and an established throne of righteousness that they don't get. And when kids needed that leadership the most, dad was out with the boys. He was bowling. He was doing this. He was fishing. He was going here. He was going there. Or he was out there preaching, and he was doing this, and he was doing that. He was traveling all around the country, all around the world, giving everybody else what they needed but his own kids. He abandoned. (laughs) And then, honestly, they, they scratch their head and wonder why when their kids are 17 or 18, they want nothing to do with the parents. Kids will always pay the price. Many times over the years, and this is true of so many of you, we take a kid to camp, and there are kids that will come to camp that their mom and dad, I think of of the little guy out there in Harrisonville, you know, that, you know, you got these kids that come to camp and their parents care nothing about them. They come to camp and they, they, they fall in love with the Bible. They get saved and they want to do what's right. And you know as well as I do. When they go back, I I try to do everything I can to offset that. That's why I did the the little accountability groups after this last camp, because I wanted to have something that we could keep touch with them, and we could keep being there for them, because they are in the most crucial time of their life and are going back to a mom or a dad or whoever, a grandma, whatever, who cares absolutely nothing about God in this church. And that kid will just get swallowed up again. And I've watched you guys. I've watched you guys be their dad, be their mom. I've watched you take them in. I've watched you spend time with them. Hey, in my many, many years, there have been many a young man I've had to become a dad to. Many a young gal I had to become a dad to to keep them from the world. And 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 you do it too. It happens all the time. Uh, it's a thing where we, uh, you know, we, I look at kids, you know, that, that if it wouldn't have been for you, you discipled them, not their parents. You taught them the Bible. It wasn't their parents. You had to help them through the issues of life. It wasn't their parents. That's what the ministry is. It's taking the poor, taking the ones who are helpless, defenseless, who the world is just waiting to swallow them up and you doing what mom and dad have failed to do. And I see it with you all the time. I've seen moms and dads lose any influence in their kid's life. I think it's a tragedy. I've seen moms and dads fail in every aspect of their children's life and they still wonder why. And the bottom line is when we fail to establish them into a righteous kingdom, a throne of righteousness, an unbroken chain of biblical truth that you are taking what God gives to you and you give it to your children, Twenty nine, twenty nine. In those vital years, letting them see within your family the peace, the mercy, the grace, the love, the warmth, the biblical principles, a righteous rule but a rod of iron that they grow up understanding, look, there is consequences for what you do. Just like there is for you and me in our relationship with the Lord. That's why God has a judgment seat of Christ for us and a great wife's own judgment for unsaved people. There's consequences. And the fathers abandon them. Mothers are so weak that they can't stand up and do what's right. And they abandon them. They're oblivious to it. But they're too busy fulfilling their own needs, what they want, making millions of dollars, making money, buying this, getting that. But the truth of the matter is, the most precious commodity they have, they abandon. I want to tell you something, folks. Just having kids doesn't make you a father. And in some cases, I get it. Guy says, well, I married a wife and she had these kids or I married a husband and he had these kids and they're not my own kids. They're biological, so I don't have any. No, 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 don't give me that. Let me tell you something. I have, a, I have 75 people in this church that I have not anywhere to do with their biological birth, but they are my children. Don't give me that. Verse 16. When the wicked are multiplied, transgressions increases but the righteous shall see their fall. Now, doctrinally, again, this will be the Antichrist and his seven-year reign that ends in his fall. But going back to our context, inspirationally, here again is a great, solid, general truth that can be applied in almost every aspect of life today in the context of families and our children that he's talking about here. You see, when we leave our children to themselves to do their own thing, the wicked most surely will pick them up. Your kids are prime target because the devil knows that if he can destroy the family, Christianity will go nowhere. So he knows. He's he's targeted. He's got the cross heads this morning on your kids. And just like in the millennium... There's no sin, there's no fooling around, there's no stupid stuff, there's no nothing. do you know why? there's a righteous reign, a rod of iron, a throne is established. Now I know you can't stop it all in this old world. I understand Jesus is not on the throne yet, but I won't tell you what a righteous rod of iron in your family, a righteous rule, a throne established for righteousness will go a long way when you understand how to use the rod. And reproof. They're going to make mistakes, they are, but they need to understand that there are consequences to it. And when they don't, they keep on making the same mistakes. When you leave your child to themselves to do their own thing, you can count on two things happening one of them with your own family, if you have multiple kids. We call this, in dealing with people's problems in families, the domino effect. The oldest one will always lead the other ones right down the same path. Most young boys idolize the older boy. Girls, the sister. They want to be like them. And when you allow them to be under themselves, you don't have a righteous rule that they see Christ in them, the domino effect is going to take place. You're going to lose the oldest one, then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and then the next one. Right down the line. It's called the domino effect. It's just that simple. The second one will be the other kids that you allow your kids to associate with. We are are who we associate with. It's just that simple. Hey, as a young man, when I was probably 12, 13, or 14, maybe a little older, now, my parents were good parents. They were. My dad worked hard, worked two jobs. My mom worked two or three jobs. But and I don't know all what happened. They started out in church and were charter members at a Canton Baptist temple. Then something happened. I don't know what it was. I know my dad smoked cigarettes all of his life. It may have been, and he was helping in the church there doing some things. Uh, probably they said, you can't do that in the smoke. Well, my dad got mad. Well, no, no, my mom got mad. Whenever my mom got mad, then dad did whatever mom wanted her to do. My mom got mad, quit going to church. We lived right across the street from the church. Some of you have seen my original house that I grew up in. Right across from the church. It ain't there anymore, but that's, I mean, it's a charismatic church now, but it's the same building. And i never forget when I was 9, 10, my mom and dad wouldn't go to church anymore. My mom would dress me up, usher me out the front door, and kiss me on the cheek and say, now you go to church. You know, there's a difference between just sending your kid to church and taking your kid to church. My mom never understood that, bless her heart. And I love my mom. My mom was a good mom. My dad was a good dad. Gave me everything I could ever want. Sacrifice for me. I'm not downing them in any way, shape, or form. I, I'm not. But I will tell you this. They never established a righteous rule. They never established a throne of righteousness. When I got in trouble, I got a whipping. And I've gotten a lot of trouble. I was a goofy little kid. I did all kinds of stupid stuff. I, I, would, I would shoot birds with my BB gun in the backyard. I remember one time I got the idea of taking a... Steve Brack, you love this one. I took a, I took a 12-gauge shotgun shell that was empty, filled it up with gasoline, put it close and put a little thing on it and light it off just to see what it would do. Stupid me left the gas can right there where it was. Almost burned the garage down. My mom is gone, my dad is gone, my sister comes out the back door, and there I am, Fireman Bob with a garden hose, holding it up, trying to put that fire up. I did a lot of doofy things. I did. But I want to tell you something. As a young man, 12, 13, and 14, even though my parents were good parents, they never established any kind of biblical rule. And every filthy, godless thing I ever learned, I learned from an older boy. I did. I learned by association. I remember being in the junior high class at church, listening to a sermon, I had three or four buddies on each side of me, and they were telling dirty jokes and doing this and doing that. I fell right into that. They taught me every filthy thing that I knew. They cussed, they smoked, they drank, they told filthy jokes, they, uh, and, you know, the peer pressure. I was just a kid. I, I mean, I'm just like every kid. I wanted to fit in. Nobody ever established a righteous rule in my life, and I just went along with it, fell right into it. Boy, I've looked back on that in my own life and learned the lesson from it. And I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things that I try to do with you, like I try to do with my kids, and I try to do with everybody in this church, is I try to build a baseline of biblical truth into your life that you'll always have as a foundation in your life. And I can't underestimate the importance of a baseline of truth in your children's life when they're from about two or three years old up to the time that they're 10 and ongoing, building that baseline of truth. So when the bad times come, and they will, don't kid yourself, they will. They're going to be no perfect child. They're all going to get into goofy stuff and do things that are wrong that you're going to say, how can my son do that? They do that because they have an old sin nature. And the way that you correct that and deal with that, a righteous reign, a throne, a rod of iron, a rod and reproof through a baseline of truth. Let me tell you something. You're way to the 15 16 17 it's almost impossible it's like trying to put water back in a boulder dam after the dam breaks hey I deal with people with issues all week long and I know so do many of you who work with me uh, and it's an absolute truth if I if I'm dealing with somebody who has been in this church and hey we all do stupid things I'm not I'm not criticizing anybody. We all do dumb things, and I've had to deal with people who were good people who did some really stupid stuff, and I have to deal with it and pick up the pieces, and I'm going to tell you, at the same time, I deal with people who don't come to church, don't do anything with the Bible, don't care about anything, and they get into messes, and I, they call me out to deal with them. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a lot easier to deal with a person who has a Bible base of truth in their life than it is with somebody who has nothing because you have nothing to work with. With the Bible base, I always have something to fall back on It's a lot easier dealing with people and their problems when they have a baseline of truth. If no baseline, you have absolutely nothing to work with and it and many times it becomes almost impossible. I'm not saying that you can't, but it's a hundred times harder. This is why this is the method behind my madness. This is why I push everybody that comes in to get into discipleship one if you if you haven't Had a foundation in discipleship too. This is why I started the people ministry to take you to the next level. So I started the Bible with the truth for you singles to bring you up to the to the next level. I got one goal that will help you through life more than anything else. It will build a base of truth in your life that when the tough times come, you have something to fall back on. And when you don't have it, you wind up in a psychiatrist's office. You'll wind up in a therapist. You'll wind up here. You'll wind up there. You'll have a problem with you. you have a problem with your kids. You'll have a problem with that. You won't what to do with it. So you'll take them in there who will charge you $100 a session or $80 a session and you'll be amazed how quickly you get healed when your money runs out. So only one, if you're saved this morning or if you're unsaved this morning, there's only one thing that's going to fix your problem and that is the book that God gave you. It's the only thing that's going to fix you. Me to you and you to your kids. And the higher you go in life in the Word of God, the deeper you go. It's the only book on the planet that as you go up, you also go down. You're a building. You're God's building. And everybody knows if you take a building and just build it 60,000 feet in the air, with no foundation, it's going to fall over. With God in the Bible, the higher you go, the deeper you go, and the wider you go. You build on that foundation the rest of your life. Then the last part of the verse there, bringeth his mother to shame. Another great truth of life. You know, I, I've dealt with it all my life. I've dealt with kids, with parents, with problems. Almost You you, may, you name it. I, I, I haven't gotten into a new one for years. Moms always take a wayward son or daughter much harder than dad does in most cases. There's some reasons for that. One of the reasons is she carried that little child for nine months. That child breathed her oxygen, got her blood. She carried him in the most intimate way, and then she gave birth to that little child. There's a bond there that you just can't walk away from. I get that. I understand that. I mean, she dressed him, her or him when he went to school in the morning. She gave him a bath while Dad was off working. When he fell on his bicycle, you put a little Band-Aid on his ouchie and you held him when he cried. When he was afraid of the dark or she was afraid of the dark, you went in and turned the little light on, held him, and said there is no such thing as boogeyman. You see, in the early years, Mom leads the way. I'm not saying it's a team concept. Dad does what he does, but let's face it. Mom has all of the, of the uh, responsibilities there. So dad's out working. Well, that child picks up around 12 or so, then dad kicks in and he takes it the rest of the way together as a team. But it's understanding what each one's rule is how mom and dad very early has to establish that throne. They establish that rule that they the kid understand. Hey, look, there are some things that are non-negotiable, and when you break them, there's consequences. A kid growing up just getting the rod without suffering the consequences, it's a terrible thing. Then it says, but the righteous shall see their fall. You can see it coming. I can. I, I, would, I would give anything in the world to go in and knock on some parent's door and say, hey, look, this is where you are headed with your daughter. This is where you're headed with your son. This is where this is going to wind up. Can't do it. You can't. And, and before you say, oh, Bob, you could do it with me, let me just say one more time. You can't do it. You say it now because you don't have any problems. Parents are the weirdest bunch on the planet. That's why they need the Bible. That's why they need structure. That's why they need to get out of the mindset of worldly parenting and get into the biblical concept of establishing a throne of righteousness, establishing a, a kingdom, establish a, a, an unbroken chain of truth that your kid knows. Hey, you know what? This is, not God's, this is, this is, this is God's house. We, we, we live by God's rules. We follow this. This is what we do. And I'm not going to tolerate you breaking those. I, that's not going to happen. There's got to be consequences. Honestly, all you can do in most cases, and this is what I do. Just stand by and watch it fall. And I'll always try to be there to help pick up the pieces. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just parents don't get it today. They just don't. They just don't. Most A lot of parents have had such a lawless lifestyle themselves, they just, their kids just follow right into it. So many parents will just not follow through with what they need, needs to be done with a rod and a the reproof. They, they just won't. They always think that their child is above what somebody else's child has done. And boy, that is a terrible thing. Every kid in this world has an old sin nature. In our text today, doctrinally, yeah, I get it. It's the Antichrist. No question about it. But inspirationally, I told you when we started, there's four great principles for training up, protecting and preserving your family to the plan of God. Not your plans, God's plan. The unbroken chain of biblical truth, the Timothy Principle. Now, the first thing I'm going to give you to do here, and I'm going to give you these four, I'm going to go back and pick them out. The first things I'm going to give you, the first one, this is for you young parents. <clears throat> it's for you young parents who are having kids and you're, you're, you've got young kids. I'm telling you right now, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to establish a throne. You've got to establish a righteous rule for your family. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 4 says, when it talks about the qualifications of a pastor or a deacon, it says that one that ruleth, there's a rule involved, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection to all gravity. I wish I had time to go through those words. Own house, having a children, subjection to all gravity. Wow. Then he says over there in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if any provide not for his own house, especially those of his own household, that he's worse than an infidel and denied the faith. You have to establish the throne. You have to establish the throne. Second of all, you have to establish the rod and reproof. You have to. You have to have an action of discipline and you have to have a consequences of their actions. You have to use the rod to discipline them, but the reproof to teach them the lessons of the consequences of what they did wrong. Third thing, you never abandon your kids in their most crucial time of their lives and leave them to themselves. Somebody else will pick them up. It'll be a teacher. It'll be a, it'll be a gym teacher. It'll be a scout master. It'll be somebody. It'll be an older boy, an older girl. They'll fall in with it, and they will go right down that road. And if you do, there's a specific process to be able to turn that thing around if you can. Fourth thing, make sure you only allow the right influences in their lives. Know who your child is spending time with. Don't just assume anything. You know, one of the greatest assets of our church is our youth ministry. Zach and Jenny do a phenomenal job. Zach works a full-time job, yet he hardly misses a kid's activity, that sports thing at school. He worked with these kids. Jenny worked with these kids. I mean, uh, they, they do it because they don't get paid. They do it because they love kids. And another great aspect of this church are the young men and the young women who, you know, you're in your 20s or so, and, and how you take and mentor these young kids. I watch it all the time. I watch you singles. Some of you guys, as far as I'm concerned, are the finest young men on this planet. I watch you young gals. Some of you are the finest young ladies on this planet. I watch you. I watch you take these kids that don't have anything and and just put them under your wing. You'll invite them to places that you're going to do this. You'll talk with them. You'll say, you know, most guys your age want nothing to do with kids like that. They're below your status, but not you. You see and understand. You girls see and understand the value. You've learned your lessons well. You've taken what we've given you, and you've applied it across the board. And now, you know, you see these kids. You take them in. You, You encourage them. Where they would be laughed at at school for something, you take them in and love them. Make them feel important. Make them feel, see it all the time. And I want to tell you something. I take no credit for that because you can't teach somebody that. You can't teach somebody that. That is somebody who just lays out the word of God and you on your own grasp it because you love God in that book and you let God change you to put you in that kind of a mindset. It's just incredible to me. I see you spend time with those young kids, and you, you encourage them, and you, you talk to them. You go after them, and you invite them. I watch you young girls do the same thing. You teach them the Bible. You disciple them. You, you have special little things that you do that you invite them over. You, you have it to bring them there. Uh, you can't teach that. And you show them by example the importance of living a life for God. It goes on all week long. And you parents need to keep the bad associations out of their lives and allow the best of the best of our church to help you. Hey, I've watched parents get a couple of you guys and gals and sit down and say, hey, my son or my daughter is having some issues here and they're struggling with some things, and I need you to help me. I need you to kind of help work with us. And I want you guys do that. I want you gals do that. I mean, they got enough confidence that they know that if they're struggling and they want their kid around good, wholesome men and young ladies, that you're the ones that they want them around. Uh, To me, as a pastor, as your spiritual father, many of you, it doesn't get any better than that. If I died tomorrow, if I died tomorrow, went home to be the Lord tomorrow, I'd rest on the fact that you guys got it, you understand it. Uh, it's a thing where it, you know it, it, I, I I use you all the time, I watch you all the time, I and I not always say something to you, but I want you to know I miss very little, and I want you and I want you just always there for them, no matter what it takes, no matter what it may be. I know in a heartbeat I can come up, put my around, around you, and say, "Hey, see this kid over here? I need you to go and just really draw him in a little bit. Just be there for him. He needs somebody." That's all I got to say. And I'll tell you that because nobody, and it's the truth, nobody, and I mean nobody. This is the failure of churches today and it's the failure of both youth ministries, but not here. I'll tell you a dying truth. Nobody, and I mean nobody, can reach another young person like another young person. The question is you can't find any that have the character, the qualities, and the things that... That the, that the rod of iron that you put into your life, the discipline you put into your life, the, the, the throne that you have in your world of righteousness. And you take that and you give to them. You're going to find that some in there are going to do it for good, some are going to do it for bad. You know what? But we have to build a baseline. We have to build a baseline. The first thing, without ever telling anybody anything, when I started this church... I had one goal. I looked across this thing, and as it grew and it came and there, I would watch everybody that came in. And I would assess them talking with you, getting to know you, being your friend, you know, us doing things together and hanging out together and eating together. My goal was to get you, on whatever level you were, the baseline that you needed. Because I knew that if you're ever going to do anything in this church, if you're ever going to do anything for God anywhere, going to be the baseline. If you don't mind me saying this, Troy, you've had your tough times in life. And I'm so glad that you're here today. And I love you more than you'll ever know. But you know why you're here, Troy? Because years ago, we built a baseline, didn't we, buddy? Hmm? And no matter what happened, no matter what took place, that baseline held. And here you are today. And you're more value me to now than you were when we were playing football on Sunday afternoon. You guys were (laughs) kicking the fire out of me. Steve Brackeen's the same way, 12 years old, first time I met him, and what a little punk he was. <laughs> I mean, we used to beat him up and whip him up in Marshall's alley faster than anybody on this planet, but you know what? The baseline stuck, and it's, it's, that's what you do, and now we're doing it all over again, guys. Now we're taking on a whole new level of kids, and I, and I know they do dumb things, I know they got problems, and I'm not criticizing anybody today, we all got our issues. My point is, we have got to begin to build that baseline. We've got to begin to have that righteous reign that a kid knows that is a brick wall and it isn't going to budge. That's what I've done with you. I'm hard on you, but I'm fair with you. I'm hard on you, but you'll never find anybody who loves you more than I do. But I'm hard on you. I will hold a line for you. And you know what? I love you so much that when you can't hold the line, I'll hold it for you. I'll never speak bad about you. Nobody in my presence will ever speak bad of you to me. That's, that's not what it's about. It's about that we are in this together. And you need me, but there's going to come a day when I'm going to need you. I won't be able to walk down them steps by myself. You'll have to carry me down, put me in my wheelchair. It's a thing where all we have is each other. But the thing that will always hold us together is the baseline rebuild. And The moment I started this church, that was my goal. Never told anybody, never said anything about it, but I knew what I needed to do, and it paid off. It's paid off in the young couples that we have. Best on the planet. Paid off in you older people that have come back and around. Couldn't beat them any better. Paid off in you young, single people. It's a thing where it works, because the baseline will always hold you accountable and it will always give you something to fall back on. Now next week, we're going to take and look at the next couple of verses and we're going to see one of the most crucial areas in our lives for ministry and for your families. And I'm going to take probably the greatest single aspect for this church, for any church, and certainly for your family and walk you down through it step by step. Well, we'll hold up there. And let me just say this.